This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. On Afternoons, we were in conversation with speech and language therapist Merrick Teo. She was on hand to talk about bi and trilingual children, some of the opportunities and some of the obstacles as well, plus what constitutes a developmental delay. Meeting the young author, Isabella, who's published her third book, my goodness, prepare to be inspired. It was Dr. Miguel from Moorfield who is discussing everything you need to know about LASIK eye surgery and in Pets and Vets, Dr. Leanne Cameron on hand as ever to answer my questions and yours. Joining us live, Mary Cateo. She is a speech and language therapist at Hope. And we were so busy last time you were on the show, Mary. I was like, we need to have her back. We need to have her in for longer. So the text lines are open. But Mary, for anyone that wasn't with us last time, would you be able to explain a little bit about what comes under your remit and what you can help with, I guess, as a speech and language therapist? Thank you for having me again. We hopefully can answer many more questions. I hope so, because I've already got lots on the text line. (laughs) Excellent. Um, So speech and language therapy is much wider than people generally think because um, we cover the basic areas of attention and listening, um, play and behaviour, understanding, uh, talking and speech sounds. So that's a lot more than people just think, uh, which is talking or just speech sounds. Mm -hmm. So um, really, um, when it's uh, little children, we're looking more for interaction and for um, uh, children wanting to uh, use their words for for a purpose really and wanting to interact with a play partner Mm -hmm. so um, we have to kind of build from the roots upwards really. And what are some of the most common issues that you've got coming into clinic right now and I guess this is my way of trying to normalize some of the some of the struggles that perhaps parents today are, are facing. Well, there are lots, but um, I think that one of the um, typical ones that we see is that um, people seem to overlook the importance of play um, and attention and listening to the other person. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are um, gaps that, if um, are you know, if, if if they're missed, they're really impacting general communication and uh, general behaviour. Actually, so really, what we're looking for is a happy <laughs> baby and a happy child and uh, children that are enjoying um, play and interaction with other people. So we really want to spark that curiosity and that joy with others um, and uh, delayed talking really as well so it's delayed interaction and we've also got um, a delay in talking and I'm I'm always nervous about using that kind of word normal but when we think about the milestones yeah. um, when would there be enough red flags what are some of the things that perhaps would lead a parent to go oh, I'm gonna go on my instinct here I feel like there might be something that needs investigating when would you an expert such as yourself get involved Mary that's an excellent question but I do have to say that um, you know we have to be careful how we frame our language so one of the words I would use instead of normal is typical because every child is different and you know every child is going to present differently so we we, you know we have benchmarks but we don't expect every child to do it exactly that way so typical is a a nice word I Mm -hmm. think Um, but yeah that's a really good question so generally a really nice one is um, if you just align the number of words that children are saying and the number of words that children are understanding with their age in the early years it's just an easy and quick benchmark uh, for you to look at so for example at one year old they should be using um, single words and they should be understanding single words like shoes and they should be able to go and get them at two years old they should be combining words and they should be uh, um, understanding two words like shoes and shoes and coat and shoes and shoes and doesn't it? maybe not coat here just oh, hat. yeah no coat <laughs> exactly sunglasses <laughs> that's too many syllables <laughs> so if you are having 
having any concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out. We've got Mary with us live through until four o'clock today. Um, we'd love to help you out. Um, I read an article that made me think of you the other day, Mary, and it was chatty mothers boost their unborn baby's language skills. Now, which made me think, maybe I, maybe I was a great mother before I even had kids. Yeah. Um, so talking to our bumps, um, mm. is this something that you feel like could be beneficial? Well, yeah, there's loads of evidence that children here, sorry, babies in the tummy can hear much earlier than they thought that they could. Um, I can't remember the exact date now, but um, there is lots of evidence to show that children are hearing. And uh, so they come out often and they know the little, um, their sibling's voice because they've oh, heard gosh. them. So well, I thought about this because we've got dogs and I always worried that the dogs would disturb the babies, mm. but they weren't because I've only really heard the barking, yeah. you know. They're nice and through, used to it. Through my tummy. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I did kind of... I mean, I, and I, I kind of talked to my, my bumps a little bit, but I guess they maybe just heard me talking a lot, generally. Um, but I started to feel quite self-conscious once the babies were born because I'd heard and read that, you know, you should try and keep up this narrative the whole time. You're like, oh, you know, here we are in spinnies and, yeah. you know, mummy's picking up a pineapple now and <laughs> doesn't it smell nice? I just felt, always felt like a bit of a wally. Um, <laughs> is there any data support that actually keeping that commentary going and... Is that, yeah. is that beneficial that as well? That is excellent. You just did an excellent thing. Definitely talk to your bump. If it feels weird, read. You know, that's just yes. a fun, easy way around it. And um, the same thing to, to babies. You know, you should, you should read to them if you're finding it difficult. But what I did is that I um, narrated through um, changing the nappy. Because, you know, you're kind of by yourself in the changing room if you're out and mm -hmm. about. You're um, by yourself at home with that. And it's a really nice way to start talking within the daily routines. And for parents, that's what the best thing What a big mess you've made. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Cateo with us today, speech and language therapist at Hope. If you've got any questions for her, she is bilingual herself. And obviously we're in a part of the world where we might have all sorts of languages in the home and indeed in education. So what are some of the challenges or indeed the opportunities when it comes to raising a bi and trilingual children? We'd love to hear from you. Joining us live, we're delighted to welcome to the show again, uh, Mary Cateo. She is a speech and language therapist at Hope Habilitation Centre. Um, and you're bilingual yourself, Mary. Tell us a little bit about that. I am. I'm, my first language, language is English, but um, I'm actually Cypriot. So I learnt Greek as a second language. Um, it was difficult for me though because my dad always who is um, native in Greek always spoke to us in English oh. <laughs> and my mother who is also Greek was born in the UK was brought up in the UK so she spoke to me in English too so I think that the difference the difficulty I had was that I wasn't given the fluid um, language at home mm. whereas the parents of our children they are they're often are native speakers so it's really interesting for me because I grew up in you know a corner of rural Northumberland where everyone's parents were pretty much from about three miles away <laughs> and then you know I come to Dubai and my children are lucky enough to I mean I could I can't even count the number of nationalities in my children's mm. classes and often within that you've got families where the parents are from different parts of the world yep. going to a British school being raised in, in an Arabic speaking country mm -hmm. so I find it really fascinating to think about some of the challenges but also I mean my goodness the amazing opportunities that these children have to be real global citizens but from a developmental point of view what are some of the things that can arise when you have got more than one language being spoken in the home Mary? Well, I think, first of all, it's really nice that you've 
pointed out that there are benefits to it as well. Definitely. Everyone always says that there's, you know, it's difficult, but actually children that are bilingual or, or exposed to more languages at home, they've been shown to have um, developed um, executive functioning, which is a whole range of skills, um, you know, including um, uh, emotional intelligence, but also um, decision making and uh, lots of other areas that are life skills, actually. So um, it has lots and lots of benefits, but also culturally, people do want to keep their language alive. And I think this is a really nice phrase to remember. <clears throat> Um, it's sad when parents come in and they say we've only been sticking to English and we haven't exposed our child to our home languages because A, you need to give the best model of language, so you always should speak in your mother tongue to mm -hmm. your child um, unless you're fluent in the second language but secondly, how is the heritage going to continue Absolutely. and how can the child feel a sense of belonging to that community if they're um, kind of uh, shielded from it really. Mm. So Let's talk about methods, we've had a message here from FAP saying as Italians living in Dubai we're really excited to welcome our first child Congratulations Yay. and raise them to be bilingual. We're familiar with the one parent, one language, OPL method, but would like to explore a more flexible approach that allows us to speak both English and Italian to our baby, maybe the time and place approach. Um, in fact, I wouldn't want one of us to be constantly speaking English to our baby. Additionally, my wife is also fluent in Spanish and French, but wondering, is it feasible to gradually introduce those as well? If Mary has any experience with some of these approaches, we'd really appreciate her guidance and recommendations. Well, this um, parent sounds really well informed. What a lucky baby! Yeah, I think so. They're really, really nice points that they've uh, they've raised here um, you know that is often something that um, speech and language therapists will tell you choose one language and stick to it your most your best language because you're giving the best example of grammar to the child um, but um, a child's brain is ready to distinguish between language systems and so even if they're presenting with some difficulties um, they're still able to distinguish between those language systems so really the advice always is to expose them to your languages um, and um, yeah if um, for other parents to understand and um, what um, this parent means is that you're in, um, so one parent, I don't know, that's fluent in Italian will speak Italian and one other parent that's fluent in French will speak to the child in French. Um, and then the other thing that they talk about is that um, you might be at home playing and then that situation you're always talking in a certain language or when you're shopping you'd, you speak in another language that's a really nice idea yeah these are all really nice ideas but don't shield don't stop your child from being exposed to languages because this really is the best time okay yeah wow fab all the very best um i love the sound of this in terms of any further reading or indeed guidance podcasts you know expertise resources anywhere would, that you would be pointing any parents who want to do a bit more reading into bi or trilingualism um, well, there's a lovely um, website where obviously I'm UK trained, so that's where my advice is going to be from. And there's a lovely website called Speech and Language UK, and they have got a myriad of information, really wonderful information. And so I direct you there, Speech and Language UK. And then there's another one called the Hannon website, H-A-N-E-N, -E and they've got lots of ideas about how to play with your child, the kind of toys you can choose, um, which again are really, really lovely skills to start off with in the early years. And good timing for any gift buying at this time of yeah. Joining us as we broadcast live from the Vida Emirates Hills, so, so happy to welcome back to the show Mary Cathia. She is a speech and language therapist at Hope AMC um, and we've got lots of questions. Um, we've been talking about being bi and trilingual, we've also had questions about developmental delays. 
as well. Let's stay with the bi and trilingual, Mary, because um, some really interesting messages and questions coming in. This that Emma's saying we've got a six-month-old um, and a 21-month-old. I'm English, husband is French, and we're raising them bilingual. Obviously, they're exposed to a lot more English than French. Um, nursery for toddler two days is in English. I'm the main caregiver. TV and songs are in English. Um, when husband's around, he speaks to me in English. We've got some French books, and I do sing them French bedtime lullabies, but I'm wondering um, a little bit about when her language is going to develop. She says, I, I know bilingual kids often speak later than all of a sudden have two languages. Is that true? Yeah, again, a really well-informed parent because um, I think I mentioned last time that um, with bilingual children, uh, we can only learn a certain number of words in a day. So if they're learning two in one language, um, then they can learn three in the other. So two maybe in English and three in French or this vice versa. So it appears that they're behind their peers uh, because they might not know that word in English yet, for example, or in mm -hmm. French yet. But um, no, they're just storing it up there. They're just slower to talk and use oh, wow. it. So this parent is really correct. And then you know? suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? Yeah and then suddenly they know loads of stuff and you're like whoa what what, what happened wow. but yeah they really are ready to soak up all that information they're just less they're not using it yet um as a, a, a child with a single language word so um this mum's question i think she's doing the right things to be honest with you mm. i think you know even if the books are in english there's there's nothing to say that we need to read it from start to finish we can just be looking and noticing what the child is looking at and then commenting in french uh, for example uh, that's a really good thing to do I I find it amazing to think that a child would be able to differentiate between those kind of language systems. Yeah. It's musicality. In fact, they think it's new. I don't know if anybody spotted this research on Facebook that says we now know that parents singing to their children is, um, is um, the key way of language learning. But there's been loads of research before about motherese and speaking in that soft musical tone mm -hmm. uh, for eons. Motherese. So, yeah, it's an old term, I but they, they have done that. They have done the research a, a long time ago. So really, music is um, a really nice way forward. It's the musicality of the language, and every language has its own musicality. That's why intonation and an interesting voice. I've got quite a childlike voice myself. So, you know, children are really drawn to that. I know I was about to say, but you, you've got a really lovely kind of soothing, you know, welcoming way about you and your voice as well. Whereas I think Thank you. you're so welcome. You're obviously <laughs> in the right job, but there are some people that, you know, even if they've got the best heart, the best of intentions can can sound or come across as a little bit scary to do with you know their tone or yeah. their language yeah. um so yeah, i find i find that i find that it's a really fascinating topic but the way it translates to children and what we're talking about today that developmental piece mm. is really really interesting um mary's with us this afternoon you can reach out to us on 4001 um loads of questions regarding development um let's ask this one no name on this one you can be completely anonymous stick a different name on if you want um saying when should parents be concerned if a child stutters what is a stutter and why does it happen before we talk about maybe some of those warning signs or indeed if there is cause for concern mary what is a stutter so um, in England, we call this a stammer. Mm -hmm. A stuttering is the American term, but they both mean the same thing. Um, and really what it alludes to is that the child is repeating um, uh, sounds in words, parts of words, uh, whole words, phrases or sentences. So that's how you can identify it, really. And in fact, it's very common in developmentally because um, children's uh, brain is kind of catching up with what they want to say. They've got so much to say and they really keenly want to get it out so they can trip over their words. Um, equally, they're only just learning language language now so it can often present as a stammer but really what mm. they're trying to do is to locate the word that they're looking for in their brain or trying to order words in their brain so um, you know it is nice
nice to catch it early, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that it's a stammer. It could just be developmental and they'll, they'll um, grow out of it. But that's quite a loaded question. It depends what's happening. It depends how often, um, you know, if it's frequent, if you're noticing it when there's heightened emotions in certain situations, mm -hmm. um, if you notice that there's anxiety along with it, really what should drive you is your concern about it. That's when I take parents seriously, when they're really concerned. And also when the child, you can tell that they're bothered about it. But they sometimes might not be. So that doesn't say it must mm. be quite difficult to kind of stop projecting our own concerns and anxieties onto a child who might be, you know, absolutely fine and comfortable. But as yeah. you say, if it's starting to, you know, impinge on, you know, on how they go about the world, if it's affecting their confidence, you yeah. know, putting Stopping up their hands talking, in school. Maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, I just watched the Ed Sheeran documentary recently and that was really interesting to think about how he used music and rapping to yeah. kind of get out of his own head when it came to his own stutter. Yeah, um, okay. It's a common phenomenon. If you sing really things, they can, um, can they, come out. Yeah, exactly. And some children as well, when they're angry, they might be able to, uh, you know, uh, make the words flow out of their mouth. It's, it's really interesting. But yeah. it's always worth um, speech and language therapy because it's a lovely, gentle approach. It gives mm. the parents lots of strategies as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it's joyful. And I think that's really what's nice here. It's facilitating. It's not, you know, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It's just we're giving the child a boost at the right time. And one of the big, biggest things to say to this mum is actually if you slow down your own talk, then your child will mirror you. So really look first at what you're doing um, to, to help your child. Makes sense. Yeah. I think it's quite difficult to explain to a child why you might need to go and see an expert, whether that is, you know, a dietitian or a mm. psychologist or a speech and language therapist. Because mm. I, I, I was just talking to a friend about this last night, about my daughter being quite a picky eater. And mm. what I want to kind of frame it to her is about someone who's going to make, you know, really help her and make things, make food fun rather mm -hmm. than it being a punishment or indeed, mm -hmm. if you don't, you know, eat this, we're going to go and see the doctor. Mm. Um, how do you tend to encourage parents to talk to their children about coming to see an expert such as yourself, Mary? I think that's a lovely question. Um, I would say that I'm most comfortable when parents leave it to me. We can just say, let's go and see this um, lady. You know, she seems quite nice or this gentleman, you never know. Um, and uh, then you can tell me how you feel afterwards. And that's mm -hmm. always what I say to the child. You can tell me if you want to come back at the end, at the end of today. And, um, you know, we can broach the subject really. You know, sometimes if it's stammering, um, your words can flow out beautifully like a river, but sometimes it's like a road that's got bumps and it's coming out bumpy which one of these do you think that your talking is and then you're just starting to build the awareness of the child because that's if they're young they don't have any or it's limited so mm -hmm. you need to build that awareness first to work on it so um i would just say make it uh, just like a, a play date just make it sound like a play date yeah you're so lovely, Mary. Thank you. Um, okay, no name on this one saying, Hi there, my niece is already five years old and she's still unable to put a sentence together. She can say and understand a few words, but still not there yet. We've taken her to many doctors and specialists. She wasn't diagnosed with any spectrum of autism. What could be the reason for the delay? And what is the right next step? We've tried reading and most things on the internet. Thank you. Sounds like a very concerned uncle there. Oh, yeah, that's very, very um, heartwarming to hear. Um, so <clears throat> my first concern would be these lots of trips to the doctors. You know, I think that obviously there's something going on and that this child needs a little bit of a boost. That's OK. Every child needs a boost in something or other. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think it's similar to what I mentioned before, the idea of a play date and the idea of um, bringing back some joy around the idea of talking is what my first, my first um,
concern would be for this little girl, Ra is it? A uh, little girl, yeah, yeah, rather than it being kind of investigation. Yeah, because it will it will tell in time what it is, you know, um, and sometimes with if it is autism, it won't be something that you can always, um, especially with girls, be able to tell straight away. It needs time and it needs to be across context and you need to talk across different professionals and adults working around the child. So mm -hmm. it can be easily missed if it is autism, but equally it could be a developmental language disorder, which very often presents very similarly to a social communication difficulty like autism. So, um, you know, uh, that might be something to look up on the internet, developmental language disorder. Yeah. There's so many um, nice websites that support with that. But um, really, the first thing that we would need to do with this child is play with her and bring back the joy to wanting to be together, spend time together, mm -hmm. um, attend to the other person, uh, and that way she'll be motivated to use her talking more. I'd be really keen to see this child, actually. Do you so. know what? To this listener, yeah. I will send you um, Mary's details. So, yeah, you can Please. set up a play date. Yeah. Um, <laughs> last question. We're, we're running out of time um, but a message here um, from no name saying my son is six and a half he's been referred um, uh, to a speech therapist by his school his voice is quite monotonous robotic and stop start does Mary have any experience of this Google only comes up with autism when I search uh, dr. Google um, mm -hmm. is this quite similar to the, the last message we had Mary when it comes to needing to meet a child and find out a little bit more but from from what that parent has said you know, monotone, robotic, stop, start. Is that something you've had in clinic before? And, you know, is there any experience that you can draw on? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it, I, I never like to, like, um, you know, bash out the terms. No, and, like, of course. You know, uh, make parents fearful with terms. But it does sound similar to kind of a motor programming disorder. And that means that the child knows exactly what they want to say. But it's so complex for all of those details to come from the brain, to bring enough air from the lungs, to shape the mouth, the teeth, the lips, uh, and everything in the right way at the right time um, to, to get our words out. It's very complex and mm -hmm. children are still developing at this age. So it sounds like it might be something to do with that and there's lots of work we can do to support that. Um, obviously, you can't uh, take, you know, make an, an informed no, decision without taking a case history, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's um, autism. It can be a feature of it, but it's not, you can't take one feature by itself and decide that that's what it is. So yeah, there's lots we can do for this child um, if um, we work on the, the technological representations and making sure that they understand more information about sounds and words and storing them in their brain more, more correctly and strongly actually. Mary thank you so much for your time today I really hope we've helped an awful lot of people certainly by making us think and realize I mean the, the bi and trilingual thing I think is just absolutely fascinating I'm, a, I'm feeling a little bit boring that I married a fellow Brit I feel like I've disadvantaged <laughs> my kids a little bit in that Not sense they do speak some Tagalog thanks to our nanny <laughs> Milani's always <laughs> endlessly amused by the fact they know what a killy killy is they also know some rude words as well that oh. I will not say on the radio <laughs> um, Mary Cateo thank you so much for your time thank and with you. your permission if anyone wants to get in touch with the words word for example or speech um, or indeed just you know help I'd be very happy to share your details with the oh, please with do. everyone listening today absolutely if you want to get in touch with those just say the word just send me the word speech I will send you the details for Mary who's a speech and language therapist at Hope there just off Beach Road in Jumeirah We love introducing you to inspirational people and they can take all forms and all ages as our next guest proves. Just 14 years old, Isabella Fehlerbeck has published three books. Oh my goodness. Last time we spoke, um, 
you, it's about your first book. So yes. thank you so much for joining yes. us, Isabella. How are you? Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm, I'm really excited to be here today. Good. Really. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a stack of books in front of us with your yes. name on it, which must just be the most amazing feeling. Before we start talking about how this trilogy has evolved, where did it begin? When did you first start creative writing? Ooh, okay, so this started around five years old, so like a while back, right? Um, I've, uh, since five years old, and even before that, you know, I grew up reading, I grew up in this little bookstore that I would hang out uh, where, while my, like, my dad would, like, work in this cafe or mm -hmm. something, and, um, you know, I, uh, as a result of, like, consistently reading, you know, my, uh, my mind has, like, opened up to this, you know, very vivid imagination that's, uh, that's, it was, it was fun at first until it started getting in the way of, like, my social interactions and, like, you know, how I'm doing at school, so, like, you know, sometimes you'd find me sitting there, like, staring into something, like, lost in my own head. <laughs> Rich in right. a, a rich oh in a yeah. world. Yes. <laughs> so you needed an outlet for it. Yes, I needed an outlet for it, and of course, uh, my parents were always very supportive of this. So my mom had decided to buy this like colorful writing startup books, and then I think it was from there that you know I started writing and like kind of just conveying what's going on in the back of my head. And well, here we are now. <laughs> Three books later. Tell us a yeah. little bit about the creation of the characters, and I guess your your hero character. Tell us about oh, that storyline. Yes. yes, okay. So, um, similar to how I write my books in general, I create my characters through like the inspiration of four things. So, books and movies, right? so that's the first, first two. These, these usually go together. So, books and movies, um, yeah, I would take like inspiration from other characters that I've in some sense like created a relationship with mm -hmm. as I'm like watching these movies or reading these books. And then um, there would be music. So music is a very integral part because like, um, see, oh, with music, I kind of get to imagine like different scenarios in my books and that also contributes to like the development of my characters wow. and like how their like character like line goes. And then finally, there's like people or like events in real life, mm -hmm. right? So I would uh, like this could come from like my friends or people I've met on the street, you know, something like that. It could be anyone really. And uh, of course, I just take inspiration from them. I don't take the actual like. But it's interesting to, like, to think about this kind of meld of inspirations all coming together and being yeah. distilled into Alex. Tell us about Alex. Ooh, okay. So um, when I first started writing about Alex, I imagined Alex to be like a, portray a portrayal of me, right? You know, uh, someone who... Um, who felt the need to like go beyond, you know, who, who always like f in some way felt like um, she was she was made for something bigger than this, mm -hmm. than whatever she's going through right now, right? And so um, I wanted to use Alex to kind of tell people, like over time as I continued writing, I wanted to tell people through Alex, you know, to be the hero of your own story, I love that. right? You know, take charge of how you want your life to be and like go for it. You know. What genre would you say your books are in, Isabella? Um, I like to say fantasy action, but mm. when, when you think of fantasy, a lot of the time you think of dragons, fairies, mermaids, and that, that section. I'm looking at, you know, the section of fantasy that's about angels, demons, and whatnot. You know, that's more of the type of fantasy my and books are looking at. And thrilling as well. Yes, thrilling. So, three books. Was that always your intention, to create a trilogy? Oh, yeah, of course. I think... Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd yeah, be delighted with one book, and you're like, of course it was three. 
Why yeah, not? it was it was always going to be three. <laughs> like at least uh, you know, uh, especially for like a debut series, it was going to be like more satisfying. But I think my series are going to become longer, like over time. Let's see. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. How you see this unfolding? Whether is there will be a fourth, or are you thinking about exploring a different world, a different character? Ooh, okay, so not to spoil too much, but there <gasps> is another series on its way. Right, there's a com completely new genre. I think, I think we're looking at around sci-fi dystopian type of thing. Let's see. Let's see. Of course, it's, it's still in the making. But uh, yeah, I'm planning to write another like another set. It might be a trilogy. It might be more than a trilogy. I don't know. <laughs> How Genuine question. How yeah. do you find time for this? You know, you're oh. obviously a busy student. You're yes. at uh, Cambridge International. Yes. You're 14 now. Things are going to get pretty serious on the yes. exam front. Do you like a writer? or how do you carve time out of your day to really prioritize this passion? Really, um, yeah, I agree with you. I, uh, things have become more, things have become busier as I've grown older. But I think I always like try to find time, especially during the weekend. Mm -hmm. Like you know, I would sit, you know, at a cafe and. Um, I would uh, just write as much as I could. Like I would attain like a certain word count like every day, um, every day or at least during the weekends, at least you know. Okay, teach me your ways. This is this, <laughs> this is what this is this is what I need. To, but it's about prioritizing, isn't it? Yes. You know, I can sit and watch. I mean, the Robbie Williams documentary, where I probably, <laughs> if I am passionate about writing a book, spend that time in a more in a more productive way. But it yes. sounds like it's been really helpful for you in terms of, you know, communicating and exploring yes. and. I guess, what do you get out of it? What do I get out, out of, of writing? Like, out of writing. Mm. Well, really, it's like, okay, so I, I think I can say this for a lot of like writers out here. Read, uh, reading, writing is like eating for us, right? <laughs> so you can, you can probably go for a bit without eating, but like the, the longer you go, the grumpier you get. Mm. And because like this, uh, as a writer, there's a lot of things going on in the back of your head, and mm. writing is how you like you let that out, mm -hmm. right? You kind of formulate the thoughts in the back of your head, and you put it down on paper, you put it down on your laptop, right? So um, I think it's kind of just like the the pleasure of um, of being able to like um, formulate your thoughts and like you know really uh, really like let them out, express and create, yeah, you can kind of express and create. Thank yeah. you. And um, well, yeah. no, I, I'm, I'm curious. So I've always written. I've written, you know, short stories and poetry mm. since I was a since I was a child. But what I find now is that writing for myself, you know, mm. helps me make sense of the world. Sometimes yes. it helps me make sense of my thoughts. And that's all. Not always for publishing. Sometimes it's, you know, diaries or yeah. just, you know, in, in my phone. Do you write for yourself as well, or is oh, it always yeah. for publication? Oh yeah, no, it wasn't always publication. I think if you look through my laptop, especially, you'd find like this sets of notes, just like like rambling and brain yapping dump. on and on yeah. just like you love know? a brain dump <laughs> yeah <laughs> now you say trilogy we think thrillers we think about this kind of fantasy world yes. my brain immediately goes to who is going to make the movie franchise isabella so in oh. an, it, be it would be pretty amazing <laughs> oh yeah who would you see as alex which if you could choose any any oh. A-lister, who would you cast? Oh, okay. So this, so like, especially planning the casting has been like a dream of mine for a very long time. Like ever since I started writing. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, I've like definitely tried to fan cast my own books. I've tried. <laughs> I, I'll just put it out there. I've definitely tried to fan cast my own books. And if anyone listening right now, if you would like to try and fan cast my book, Ooh, you please feel free. I, I would that. love to know what you think. But like uh, as of right now, I think the the really the best candidate for like Alex, especially Alex Hades, is probably like John Jennifer Lawrence. Mm. Yeah, I think her popularity has risen now with like the the new Hunger Games movie. I've always loved Hunger Games, and yeah. I think it was through that movie that I realized you know she might be a really good candidate for Alex because you know. Alex is like, she's like, um, 
she's carefree. She like she goes beyond, you know, something like that. Love right? this. So, um, I heard that you have a saying where the proceeds from the book yes. are allotted. Tell us about that, Isabella. Okay, so my family and I have always, always, always believed that you know, if the universe blesses you with any opportunity, it's your responsibility to give back, right? So when I released my first book, you know, I was like, you know, blessed with the opportunity the first time to you know um, open up this pathway for my journey as a writer right um, especially during the height of the pandemic you know mm. it was it was such a blessing for us and so we decided it was only right to give back right so we saw you know the economic crisis that follows the pandemic and um, you so we decided to you know to partner with the UAE food bank and you know provide food and necessities to some of the overseas f working families here in the UAE who were affected by you know the COVID-19 pandemic wow. well right? done thank and you thank you for flagging that <laughs> yeah and um, there others uh, okay so that's like one half of like the entire proceeds of my first book so the other half went to the friends of kids with cancer foundation like back home in the Philippines this is a, this is a uh, this is an organization really that my family and I I keep very close to heart and uh, we've been like supporting for like a while now so that's the first book right the second book okay the second <laughs> book <laughs> is uh, this was like donated to uh, the, de the development of a reading center in uh, again a school that's especially we, we keep the school like very close to heart uh, Bukhanan integrated school back home in the Philippines we donated to a the development of a reading center Wow. Uh, like near to that school, like dedicated to that school, because you know I wanted these kids to really experience you know the love and happiness that I felt when mm -hmm. I grew up reading, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah. And number three, we'll see. Oh yeah, numbers. Th well, number three, we're of, of course we're always looking. We're, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Where can people find your books? I guess is my next question. Um, <laughs> you are you know just fourteen years old. You've been included in the fifty global inspirational women to look out for in twenty twenty four by Titanium Magazine. That award's going to be happening in Bangkok. Yes such an esteemed author and, and young woman um so where can people find your books and continue to support you and of course the causes that you work with isabella okay so of course my uh my books can be found on amazon uae and i think some other countries as well um and of course you can contact my dad there you go thank you, yeah. thank you so much for joining us honestly okay. it's an absolute pleasure to catch up with you and um enjoy the holidays yes of course relax come have a have oh. a hot chocolate and some <laughs> snacks with us here at video Emmett hills your, your parents are down here yes. the holidays have begun try and have a little break but not too long because i'm sure there's a lot of a uh, lot of readers out there who are yes. really keen for your next installment isabella Fayla big thank you so so thank much you. absolute pleasure thank to you join so much us. for having me here your eye health on eye with moorfields eye hospital dubai world leading experts in eye care moorfields driven by your vision. Delighted to be joined this afternoon by Dr. Miguel Marcelo as consultant ophthalmologist in cornea, cataract and refractive surgery. And we're talking about corrective surgery today. Laser, LASIK. What do you need to know? Could you be a good candidate? Of course, answering your questions too. So reach out on 4001 on the app or the WhatsApp too. And I say this as a woman in her 40s wearing spectacles that are getting progressively stronger as I get older. So Dr. Miguel, I need, your, I need your advice. How are you this afternoon, sir? Uh, how are you, Helen? Thank you very much to, for having me in your program. My pleasure. Now, you're going to be busy between now and half past because I think a lot of people are very interested in getting this surgery. Before we go to the text line and before we start talking about the intricacies and candidate, would you mind explaining, and I, I don't want to get too technical, what happens during laser vision corrective surgery. What ultimately are you performing there at Moorfields? 
during the laser procedure, uh, what we the main objective is to uh, reshape the curvature of the cornea. Depending on the the focus of every patient, the laser it's uh, changing the shape of the cornea, changing the power lens of the cornea to focus properly the, the eye according to the to the treatment that we are doing, being myopia, astigmatism, mm -hmm. or hypermetropia. Okay. The how is the next bit. So obviously there's lasers involved. How long does a typical procedure take, doctor? Uh, it takes around 10 minutes. Oh. Uh, but for both eyes, I'm, I'm talking. Uh, wow. It, it's, very, it's very fast. It's very fast. That's really fast. Now, I'm, I'm going to be totally honest because my husband makes this joke quite a lot. He wonders why so many opticians and ophthalmologists wear glasses when laser surgery is available. Um, and I always think, do you know what? He has got a point. Um, so let's talk about who makes a good candidate. For those people out there listening, you know, what would you be looking for asking of any potential patients to think that, do you know what, this could really be life-changing for you? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, this is one of the, the, the first questions I ask my, uh, my patients is if they have, really the, they have the way to improve uh, his or her quality of the life because uh, doing some activities uh, in life, being sports, leisure, or, or simply feeling better, uh, mm -hmm. when you do the laser surgery, is really life-changing. It, it's very important to, to handle also the expectations of the, of the patients. Although today I have to recognize that the patients are quite realistic in their expectations. They, they, the, the knowledge is uh, widely available and, and they are well informed in general. Right. I want to go to the text line, if you don't mind, doctor. We've had a number of questions asking about exactly that kind yes. of suitability. Um, Will says, how long do you need to recover? Specifically, how long until I can drive again? So following laser surgery, what's the downtime like? Can you explain what might happen in the hours and days after a surgery? Hmm. Uh, after after uh, laser surgery, depending on the procedure, uh, you can be at home with the eyes closed uh, uh, for a few hours, up to one or two days, depending on the laser procedure that we are using. And the recovery is also fast, but uh, I used to give... Uh, if people uh, is doing LASIK surgery, for instance, I give a couple of days of uh, sick leave because usually after this time, most of my patients can recover normal, uh, normal life, come back to the office and, and start to drive the car again. Although some other uh, procedures like uh, the surface laser procedures, they take a little bit longer from uh, five to seven days to get a um, uh, functional uh, vision. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, Well, really hope that helps. We have got from Moorfields this afternoon, Dr. McGill, consultant ophthalmologist in cornea, cataract and refractive surgery. We will be going to the text line again in just a few minutes. Um, Fatima's talking about an eye treatment called Karma Inlay. It's a friend of hers in the UK. Um, is this possible in Dubai? Um, we've also had questions about does laser eye surgery effectiveness wear off as you get older? And if you've got a question you'd love to put to our expert from Moorfields Eye Hospital. Your eye health on eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. World leading experts in eye care. Moorfields. Driven by your vision. Consultant ophthalmologist Dr. Miguel Mosello joining us today from Moorfields to answer my questions and many of yours coming in on the text line regarding laser vision correction surgery, a.k.a. LASIK. Right, doctor, I hope you had a little coffee then because we're going to the text line. We have had a message here asking about, is it true 
that you can't have laser eye surgery after the age of 45. Is that the case? No, no, it's, uh, it's completely possible if the eye requires the matches the expectations of uh, having a good health in the cornea uh, and the eye in general. But, of course, uh, people that uh, undergo LASIK or any other LASIK procedure after 40-45, it's possible that we are facing another problem that appears with the edge, which is the presbyopia. And some patients, when they do the laser, depending on the case, they should be warned about the possibility of using glasses for reading. That's exactly what happened to my mum, because she had the surgery about six years ago, and has yeah, she's, she's got back to her old ways of misplacing reading glasses all over the house. But in general, the eye surgery has, has been really, really effective, which leads me to um, a question from Al saying, a year ago, my vision was perfect. I could easily read the bottom line on the chart, then very quickly couldn't read up close. I saw an ophthalmologist and she said everything was fine, but being 46, that's what happens. Now I feel like I need even stronger glasses. What is the normal pace of deterioration and can laser help or do I need to wait until the ter deterioration slows down? Great questions, Al, there. What can you, what can you help with there, Dr. Mogal? Yes, this is a very good question because the, uh, and also frustrating for the patient because this patient was doing fine, but suddenly something is happening that uh, limits uh, his performance and makes him use glasses more and more and more. This is, this is the typical case of presbyopia that uh, affects uh, all human beings in the 40s and it's getting worse uh, during the 50s and make us, even if we have a good far vision, to use glasses for the near activities. We have solutions for that. Uh, for these cases, LASIK uh, can help, but every case should be studied because today we have even better, better procedures to solve the presbyopia with intraocular lenses. But every case should be, should be uh, uh, studied because some cases, yes, still can benefit. And Al's question about, you know, should you wait until that deterioration stabilizes before having surgery, or does that not really make a difference, doctor? Uh, it's, it's the opposite. We have to, to do the surgery after the stabilization of the vision, because uh, uh, the, 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 the structure of the eye changes, especially during the age that we grow and the early adult, uh, adulthood years. And uh, once it is stabilized and settled, is when is the ideal moment to do the laser and remove it. Because as adults, eyes don't used to change so much in the short term. Mm -hmm. One question okay. you raised before is was about the about the long term. Yes, it's possible yes. that with, with the years some some uh, some myopia can appear again, is not frequent and can be in most of the cases treated as well. And Mufadal saying, how many patients need retreatment? Asking about the costs and also the risks as well. Let's start with that retreatment. You know, is there, how common is it to perhaps go under the laser again? It is not common. It's not common if you choose the patients <coughs> carefully when, when they show that they have become stable and they are adults. Uh, uh, the adult eye don't change so much. And uh, in case we have to do, in the frequent cases we have to do, is not after two, three, four years maybe after 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I like to, to, to plan my cases in a way that in case uh, the myopia grows a little bit, which is not expected to grow too much, but it's possible to grow, at least we have some spare uh, tissue in the cornea to uh, do an enhancement and remove that uh, possible future glasses. Steve's asking, can laser surgery correct astigmatism? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, laser is... It's just a question of reshaping the cornea. 
Astigmatism mm -hmm. is caused by a, a oval shape of the cornea that, that create, creates a different curvatures depending on the different axis of the cornea. It's only a question to tell the, the laser the amount of the astigmatism and the uh, axis of the astigmatism and the computer of the laser will provide a, a proper treatment to, to remove the astigmatism. Um, Mufidel was asking about cost as well. Um, and I know it's hard to give a kind of an estimate um, on the radio, but is that something that the team could help with or are you able to give us a bit of an idea? Yes, uh, depending on the procedure that uh, that we perform uh, in most fields, uh, the cost can vary from uh, six to six, five to six thousand to uh, ten, eleven thousand uh, dirham, both eyes. And I'm saying, I'm, I've course, got to ask uh, you a selfish question. <laughs> I'm yes. sitting here with my glasses on, and I wear them mostly for work. Um, you know, I'm at my computer, I've got many screens in the studio, um, usually yeah. for, if I'm on my phone or reading at home. So my, I don't even know how to say it, my long distance is excellent. I've been told it's better than 2020, but for reading, things are going down the toilet very quick. Um, so my prescription's about 1.5, so it's not, it's not a strong prescription at all. But I wondered, would I be a good candidate, Doctor? Because I'm, start, I'm starting to get like my mother, and I'm as always asking where my reading glasses are. And as much as I love Babs, it's a bit early for that in my life. No, in, in this case, we are, we are talking uh, about a case of presbyopia. And in this case, we can try... Uh, it's possible that laser can help you. I can explain you. Uh, for, the, for this, of course, is the best is to, to meet personally and, and see what, uh, what can be the result. But with laser, we can do something. It's what we call combined vision or monovision. Uh, should be tested before. If uh, this option uh, we like to test with contact lens is not, is not uh, um, good enough for you, then we can discuss about the possibility of implanting a lens inside. But it's also another option with, uh, with very good results. But there is a solution. Okay. Um, I've got another question for you. Just come in now um, from Flory on the text line saying, would I be a good candidate? Uh, minus 350, or I don't know if that's 3.5, and minus 4 in, in the other, with mild astigmatism, could laser work for me? She's asking. This case is, is very common. Uh, the, only, the only thing I need to know is how thick and, uh, and regular is the cornea. Uh, all the candidates should uh, undergo this cornea test called topography. And if the cornea meets uh, all uh, the, the conditions, this is a very simple and, and common case in, in laser surgery. You sound almost bored. It's like, yeah, this is easy. This is, it. This is, the, this is the bread and butter of my work, Flurry. Don't worry about it. Um, for anyone, I guess, who is listening and goes, do you know what? Enough's enough. New Year's resolution is to, is to ditch the bins and, uh, and, and you know, live glasses free. What's the first step? You know, who do you need to go and see um, to get that assessment, doctor? Could we come direct to a consultant ophthalmologist? Is there anyone else at Moorfield you would recommend? Yes, of course. We have a, a procedure in the office, in the office department, that is called laser assessment. Every, every possible candidate can come and we do a full study of the, of the conditions of the eye. Uh, we see the age of the patient, the glasses that uh, he's wearing, the evolution of these glasses, and then we can explain the, the possibilities that we, that we have for him to improve the quality of, of his life. 
One last question. It's just come in the text and saying, I have long sight and short sight. Uh, minus 5.5 and reading glasses 1.5. Can I get laser done? Is that kind of a more interesting case for you than some of the standard ones? Dr. Miguel, is, is laser an option in this, in this potential patient's case? Depending on the age, if this patient is uh, uh, until 40, 45, laser can be a, a, good, a good option. If it's uh, older, let's say 55, 60, in this case, we, we can uh, speak about better possibilities. But also, it's a possibility to do a laser if the patient, being 50, 55, 60, can accept a certain glasses for the near distance. This, this, all, these, all these details are, are discussed with, with every, every patient, so they have a, a better idea of what can they expect of the procedure, and, and of course, they, they, they can choose better. Crystal clear. Dr. Miguel, thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to let you get back to your busy clinic. Really, really appreciate those answers there. I think helping out an awful lot of people in terms of the range of options available and some of the questions we need to be asking to ascertain if someone is a good candidate. Dr. Miguel speaking to us, consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfield Eye Hospital. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. And you could be winning a three-month supply of ProPlan pet food just by getting in touch with a question, a comment. I have had some adorable photos coming in on the WhatsApp, by the way. So shout out to uh, Sir Gucci. <laughs> just the eyes on this cat. Just gorgeous. All of this will put you in the draw. Lorraine has even sent me a video. Oh my goodness, it's a, it's a rabbit and a cat. This is why I love pets and vets so much. Um, thank you guys for getting in touch. Now, the expert guiding us through these issues, these concerns, busting myths, is Dr. Leanne Cameron from the British Veterinary Hospital. Dr. Leanne, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, it's been a very hectic day, so um, Tell me I about apologize it. if I fall asleep <laughs> at some point, but after all, very busy. Uh, Leanne, of, I was awake. Busy. I, I was awake from 1.30 in the morning until 4 o'clock as Paul Milani will testify because I was sending your emails and I was sending your plans for Christmas content and, uh, yeah, frazzled, yeah, yeah. frazzled is, is an understatement. So I feel your pain. I really do. Um, I've got good news, though. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm Gary, ready. the garage cat, <laughs> might have a new owner. Oh, so I know. I know. Little soul has been living in the garage and mewling up a storm for the last three weeks. And my kids have become very attached. But keeping her, unfortunately, is just not that sustainable. We live really close to a main road. And I think she's desperate for some love and attention. And, you know, us playing with her in the garage is not really, I think, what she wants. So a friend of a friend has said that Gary, the girl, might have a home. I don't know if they're going to change the name. I'd be very disappointed, to be honest. <laughs> I would, but I wouldn't blame them. Um, so what's keeping you busy? You sent me a picture of some unusual patients in your clinic a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, we've, got, uh, yeah we've got a lot of um, different uh, species in at the minute. We had four little pygmy goats um, that uh, had, unfortunately, upset tummies, um, and mm. uh, we've been looking after them. They're gorgeous, but you'll get, you'll get clients coming in with their dogs and cats and suddenly hear a in the background and they're a bit like fantastic too badly which is great um but yeah as i said even today i got up this morning and came in and i have done 
a pyometra surgery, which is why I always say to please spay your dog. So that is an infection of the womb. So I had to do that first thing and then straight into removing 30 uh, bladder stones from a little Pomeranian bladder. So, um, and then a couple of dentals. So as I say, we've been kept very busy by all sorts of things. But I do, I do think that during that, during this kind of stressful time of coming up to Christmas where loads of people have guests coming and they're so busy, animals just love to throw in the spanner and you know mm-hmm. they end up getting early at this time just to be like, yeah, I'm still here. So um, <laughs> usually when everything starts to quiet down, it's actually getting quite busy. I know, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy. Sit down for the next uh, next half or hour or so. We've had loads of questions for you, Leanne. So um, let's start with this one, if you don't mind. And it does tie into what we've just been talking about Um stray cats. Bella saying, what is the best way to save a stray cat from the street without him or her being scared? And how can you gain their trust? I mean, I guess there's kind of two parts of this. Maybe some stray cats don't want to be rescued from the street. Mm -hmm. However, if you do need to gain their trust, maybe they need some medical care or you're looking to trap new to release. What are some of the tried and tested ways to to gain that trust and, and get them to safety? I feel like you're nearly the perfect person to answer that question as well. Feed them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's trying not to um, get too much too soon. Um, it's one of those things where obviously it's hard, especially if you notice that maybe the animal's injured in some way or it's maybe limping or something like that. But actually, as long as there's no kind of um, you know severe open wounds or bleeding and, and they're generally fine, at the end of the day, a cat that's generally well will eat. Um, and of course, a stray cat wants to. Um, and, and they then start to rely on... Um, kind of general routine so I usually find it's just sort of being there at the same time with some food and staying you know giving them an area where they can um, have a little bit of comfort so even just you know an old pillow or something like that where they can um, away from everybody so that it's not affecting and you know as you guys know you know it started where um, you know Gary was hiding away all the time and, and now she's got that confidence to be okay they're they're not going to hurt me weaving around my ankles and you know wanting to play and roll around and we're putting different mats out for her to scratch because she's really into different textures and things as a little kitten so it does it it does take time well you have to remember that you know nothing particularly in a very young cat and hopefully if you catch them like the way you have with gary when she's quite young and she hasn't had any bad experiences unfortunately not every cat has a good experience here with people so um, you know don't get disheartened if you really can't sometimes the trauma that they've gone through beforehand um, is just they you know they they don't want to be caught they're quite happy and a lot of the times you know as long as you're feeding them and giving them a safe space then um, and you can keep an eye then as I say that's key thing in terms of trap neuter release there are as I say there's lots of um, charity groups out there that are very willing to help with kind of getting cage traps and things where you basically put the food in um, and help um, with trap with trapping them. There's a lot of those, you know, even in my community in Arabian ranches, and um, there's numerous people dotted around with those available that are always available to chat. So, of course, chat, trap release is the best way to control the stray population. And um, if you can, at least, you know, if you can help in that sort of mannerism, then that would be amazing as well. Any, any little can help to just control and make the population healthier. Well said indeed. Dr. Leanne Cameron with us today from the British Veterinary Hospital. Loving the messages we've had 
Oh my goodness, a cat in the Christmas tree from Salvador. Cat Boo Boo, resting as one of the gifts. Absolutely beautiful beast and a very nice tree as well, Salvador. We're taking your question, loving the photos of your animals coming in. And of course, if you do need some advice from Dr. Leanne Cameron, you are more than welcome to reach out. I've had a question from Uni about, my cat has worms but won't take the meds. Any expert advice? Um, we've also had messages about weeing on the bed. Beth and Freddie, I don't know, I don't know, I guess Freddie is the bed weir. Uh, we're going to be helping you out with that. So please don't hesitate. We are very much on here to hand, no, on hand to help. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. And you could be winning a three-month supply of ProPlan pet food just by getting in touch with a question, a comment. I have had some adorable photos coming in on the WhatsApp, by the way. So shout out to uh, Sir Gucci. <laughs> just the eyes on this cat. Just gorgeous. All of this will put you in the draw. Lorraine has even sent me a video. Oh my goodness, it's a, it's a rabbit and a cat. This is why I love pets and vets so much. Um, thank you guys for getting in touch and don't forget that prize is up for grabs between now and five o'clock. Now, the expert guiding us through these issues, these concerns, busting myths is Dr. Leanne Cameron from the British Veterinary Hospital. Dr. Leanne, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, it's been a very hectic day, so um, I apologise if I <laughs> fall asleep at some point, but after all, very busy. Uh, I was awake. I, I was awake from 1.30 in the morning until four o'clock as Paul Milani will testify because I was sending your emails and I was sending a plans for Christmas content and uh, yeah, frazzled, yeah, yeah. frazzled is, is an understatement. So I feel your pain. I really do. Um, I've got good news though. Yeah. Are you ready? Gary, ready? the garage cat oh. might have a new owner. Oh. So I know. I know. Little Soul has been living in the garage and mewling up a storm for the last three weeks. And my kids have become very attached. But keeping her, unfortunately, is just not that sustainable. We live really close to a main road. And I think she's desperate for some love and attention. And, you know, us playing with her in the garage is not really, I think, what she wants. So a friend of a friend has said that Gary the girl might have a home. don't know if they're going to change the name. I'd be very disappointed, to be honest. <laughs> I would, but I wouldn't blame them. Um, so what's keeping you busy? You sent me a picture of some unusual patients in your clinic a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, we've got uh, yeah we've got a lot of um, different uh, species in at the minute. We had four little pygmy goats um, that uh, had unfortunately upset tummies, um, and mm. uh, we've been looking after them. They're gorgeous, but you'll get you'll get clients coming in with their dogs and cats, and suddenly hear a in the background and they're a bit like too badly which is great um but yeah as i said even today i got up this morning and came in and i have done a, a pyometra surgery which is why i always say to please spay your dog so that is an infection of the womb so i had to do that first thing and then straight into removing 30 uh, bladder stones from oh. a little Pomeranian bladder. So, um, and then a couple of dentals. So as I say, we've been kept very busy by all sorts of things. But I do, I do think that during that, during this kind of stressful time of coming up to Christmas where loads of people have guests coming and they're so busy, animals just love to throw in the spanner and you know mm. they end up getting early at this time just to be like, yeah, I'm still here. So uh, <laughs> usually when everything starts to quiet and down, it's actually getting quite busy. 
lesson. I know, I'm sure. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy. Sit down for the next uh, next half or hour or so. We've had loads of questions for you, Leanne. So um, let's start with this one, if you don't mind. And it does tie into what we've just been talking about, um, stray cats. Bella saying, what is the best way to save a stray cat from the street without him or her being scared? And how can you gain their trust? I mean, this, I guess there's kind of two parts of this. Maybe some stray cats don't want to be rescued from the street. Mm -hmm. However, if you do need to gain their trust, maybe they need some medical care or you're looking to trap new to release. What are some of the tried and tested ways to, to gain that trust and, and get them to safety? I feel like you're nearly the perfect person to answer <laughs> that question as well. Feed them. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's trying not to um, get too much too soon. Um, it's one of those things where obviously it's hard, especially if you notice that maybe the animal's injured in some way or it's maybe limping or something like that. But actually, as long as there's no kind of, um, you know, severe open wounds or bleeding and, and they're generally fine, at the end of the day, a cat that's generally well will eat. Um, and of course, a stray cat wants to, um, and, and they then start to rely on um, kind of general routine. So I usually find it's just, Sort of being there at the same time with some foods um, staying you know giving them an area where they can um, have a little bit of comfort so even just you know an old pillow or something like that where they can um, away from everybody so that it's not affecting and you know as you guys know you know it started where um, you know Gary was hiding away all the time and, and now she's got that confidence to be okay well, they're they're not going to hurt me weaving around my ankles and you know wanting to play and yeah. roll around and we're putting different mats out for her to scratch because she's really into different textures and things as a little kitten yeah. so it does well, it, it does take time well, you, you have to remember that you know nothing particularly in a very young cat and um, hopefully if you catch them like the way you have with gary when she's quite young and she hasn't had any bad experiences unfortunately not every cat has a good experience here with people so um you know don't get disheartened if you really can't sometimes the trauma that they've gone through beforehand um, is just they you know they they don't want to be caught they're quite happy and a lot of the times you know as long as you're feeding them and giving them a safe space then um you know, and you can keep an eye then as i say that's a key thing in terms of trapping you to release there are as i say there's lots of um charity groups out there that are very willing to help with kind of getting cage traps and things where you basically put the food in um, and help um, with trap with trapping them. There's a lot of those, you know, even in my community in Arabian ranches and um, there's numerous people dotted around with those available that are always available to chat. So of course trap trapnet release is the best way to control the stray population and um, mm -hmm. if you can at least, you know, if you can help in that sort of mannerism then that would be amazing as well. Any any little can help to just control and make the population healthier. Well said indeed. Dr. Ann Cameron with us today from the British Veterinary Hospital. Loving the messages we've had. Oh my goodness, a cat and the Christmas tree from Salvador. Cat Boo Boo resting as one of the gifts. Absolutely beautiful beast and a very nice tree as well, Salvador. We're taking your question, loving the photos of your animals coming in. And of course, if you do need some advice from Dr. Leanne Cameron, you are more than welcome to reach out. I've had a question from Uni about my cat has worms but w won't take the meds. Any expert advice? Um, we've also had messages about weeing on the bed. Beth and Freddie. I don't know. I don't know. I guess if Freddie is the bed weir. Uh, we're going to be helping you out with that. So please don't hesitate. We are very much on here. Tanned, no, on hand to help. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. 
It's Dr Leanne Cameron from the British Veterinary Hospital that we've stolen away from a very busy clinic to answer my questions and yours that are coming in on the text line. Don't forget, you are automatically in the draw if you send me a photo of your pet. I always love to hear your origin stories, where your where your fairy friend came from, um, how they got their name. And of course, if something is concerning you on the health or behavioural front, saving your trip to the vets, hopefully, just by getting in touch on 4001 on the app and the WhatsApp too. Um, Uni's been in touch, uh, Leanne, saying, my cat has worms but won't take tablets. He'll scratch if you try and prise his, his mouth open. I've tried crushing them, but he knows it's there. I've tried disguising it with chicken or something nice to eat. Won't touch it either. Wondering what else I can do. The liquid form doesn't seem to work either. Poor cat is suffering and we don't know how to get rid of them. Any suggestions? Welcome. Can we help out Uni? Yeah, we can. Um, we can help specifically because um, back in the UK, um, the drug companies there decided that actually it, it is very difficult to give cats worming tablets. And if they decide they don't want it, there is no love nor money that's ever going to get it down their throat, even mm -hmm. from us experienced ones. Um, so we've actually brought over a spot on for worms that do oh. both round worms and tape worms that we have in the clinic, especially shipped in from the UK. So that is something that um, she can um, come. We obviously would need to see the cat to get, get the weight and everything and just check everything else is okay before we prescribe it. But we have a spot on that lasts for three months. So that is the option. And then once once you go spot on, you'll never go back is the <laughs> game. Is generally what, that, what happens. Yeah. Love it. Love a game changer. Thank you for that. Uni, there you go. That was a fortuitous question. Um, so you can find Dr. Leanne Cameron at the British Veterinary Hospital and they've got the spot on dewormer. All right, great. Um, we love knowing what your pets are called. Beth and Brackett and Freddie have been in touch. Um, Beth saying, I presume, I have literally not a single clue as to why my male cat keeps weeing on my bed. He's done it twice this month and a few times throughout the year. He's not long been spayed. I thought that would help, but it hasn't. Is there anything I can do to stop him? I'm trying my best to keep him out of the bedroom, but he sneaks in there without me even knowing about it. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. That's not, that's not a fun thing, Beth, yeah, at all. Yeah. And is there any reason why this behavior might start or indeed might continue, Leanne? Yeah, unfortunately, it, there's a whole list of things that could be the reason. So, um, genetically, some cats are very, very, their bladders are very, very sensitive to the stress hormone. So, if he is stressed in any way, um, so I don't either. I don't know whether it wasn't mentioned by the listener whether there's other cats in the um, in the house as well. But if there is a new cat, for example, or there is any new stressors, sometimes it's triggered by a new baby in the house, um, sudden um, change, um, you know, moving house, any of these things. Sometimes it can actually be really difficult to specifically pinpoint it but sometimes it can even be a new cat in the neighborhood that's walking walking by and glaring in at the cat and then they get quite stressed and then as soon as you get stress hormone in a bladder you get inflammation and then you get that cystitis feeling of I just need to go whenever and they can't hold it long enough to be bothered to get up from the bed to then come down and you know use their litter tray. How to try and combat it I would recommend um, always one more litter tray than there is number of cats in the house. Make sure it's always accessible. Um, I, for one, am very bad at walking out um, of the of the toilet and closing the door behind me and forgetting that Per <laughs> Hendrix needs access to his toilet. And I find him kind of 
crossing his legs and walking around meowing oh, at me because he needs him. to get it. But it's simple things like that that you don't really think about. But having access as much as possible um, and trying to find there are some um, plugins that can help, which are, which essentially release the happy hormone for cats that can help reduce stress in the environment. But as I say, um, obviously all these things. The other thing, obviously, is that if there is a little infection, you know, brewing or something like that, and there is some medical reason, then obviously that would be the first thing um, to rule out. And sometimes post-surgery, occasionally you can get a few little cats that will end up with a little UTI. So um, Mm -hmm. I would definitely recommend that the urine's checked. And then after that, it's basically a consult to try and figure out where the stress response is, what food we can give, what medications we can give to try and reduce that stress and then hopefully that will um, reduce down those incidents because I know once cat pees in your bed it's so difficult oh, to get no. out the smell out it's the not disaster. the dream alright Beth really hope that helps and of course Freddie too um, Dr Leanne Cameron is with us live on the line if you've got any questions for hers now is the time. We've got a few we're going to be addressing after half past. We've got Shadi, who's been in touch about a miniature Yorkie who became very unwell quickly um, on Sunday and yesterday, struggling to breathe, constantly coughing. The vet has um, organised an ultrasound and they've just rang. Um, so saying good timing. The dog's got a collapsed trachea, possible Cushing's disease and kidney disease. But what does this mean? Um, Dr. Leanne breaking it down for us, hopefully. We've also had a message about a rescue who's been brought up on human food and doesn't want anything else. Um, plus, Gina, getting seasonal. I'm looking to buy a pet toy for my daughter's dog for Christmas. How do I know they are safe? Is there a mark, a kite mark to look out for? We'll be breaking that down as well. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. She is one of the busiest vets in town. Dr. Leanne Cameron treating everything from kids, goats to kittens and on hand this afternoon to help us out with any issues you might be having with your furry friends. Um, We've got a message here from Shadi who sounds, to be honest, Leanne, like, you know, really needs a bit of help today, um, saying, hi both, really appreciate your time and good timing. Um, I need the thoughts and advice about my miniature Yorkie. He became very unwell quickly on Sunday and again yesterday, struggling to breathe, coughing constantly. The vet arranged an ultrasound and just rang. Our dog's got a collapsed trachea possible Cushing's disease and kidney disease. What does this mean? What do I need to know? Oh, Shadi, I'm sending you the biggest hug. It's it's awful feeling like you're out of control and you don't know what you need to know. Um, Would you be able to break that down a little bit to Shadi and explain what what might be happening with this miniature Yorkie? Yeah, of course. Sorry, Shadi, you're going through it. it. It's very difficult whenever you have to try. You're being told things and it's we're always taught as vets to try and um, make it as client-friendly as possible because there's a lot of big words in there that say it's a lot to process um, anyway. And sometimes I actually find, um, regardless, I'll obviously give my advice on what you have said, but sometimes I find over the phone is much more difficult to just kind of speak. I, I often like to draw pictures, you know, show x-rays, show things, and I find it it's a lot easier for my clients to understand kind of one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So that, that I think is certainly um, would be the best thing. Obviously, I'm sure you're going in to see your little Yorkie and um, do try to get time with the vet so that you can just sit um, and just understand it a little bit more. But um 
unfortunately, sometimes these little Yorkies, I'm not sure what age he is, but um, sometimes they are pretty invincible for a long period of time and can have little things kind of brewing um, for a period of time. Then suddenly, if you have a number of problems, my tracheal collapse is essentially the windpipe in um, a miniature Yorkie, which is probably about two to three kilos, um, so very small. Um, and their airways essentially are also very small. And the cartilage becomes, um, it, it basically becomes malleable to the point where when they try to breathe in air not an awful lot, instead of opening up further, the pressure actually causes it to collapse. And naturally then he's going to then breathe faster and harder because of that happening. Um, that is the type of thing that is probably um, he's had for a very long time, but because his body is now under a lot more stress, mm-hmm. um, then it's it's obviously worse. So hopefully, once we try to find out what the other underlying things are, it's very rare that we, unless they're very very bad, that we need to do surgery to stent those air um, those windpipes. Um, tissue, obviously, kidney disease. Our kidneys are very important organs um, that um, obviously uh, filter our blood and process older dogs, especially in. Um, Dubai, where they're constantly concentrating urine, urine all the time. You know, we, us and all of our animals are living almost um, all the time in a sort of dehydrated state. So they work very hard all the time. Kidney disease again is is generally can be from infection. It can be um, congenital. It can be something that um, is just for a short period. Acute kidney disease can be treated with antibiotics and support with fluids um, if required. So don't panic too much about that until we can understand if this is something that looks like it's just happened over the last mm-hmm. couple of days. If that's the case, we can, it can hopefully be reversed. If it's more chronic, then it's a management thing. Um, you know, Helen, your dog Jarvis has a kidney thing that we've been monitoring for some time. He's on years. a kidney food. Years, yeah, years kidney and food years. Yeah, has kept him going for those that long period of time. So mm-hmm. don't panic about that. Cushing's is a is a bit more complex in terms of it is a um, overstimulation of the adrenal glands to produce stress hormone, and we all know that what stress does in our lives and to our bodies, um, and it is something that again, if it is diagnosed, it can be managed by medication. So, do not panic. I know he's obviously he's he's gone downhill in the last couple of days, but it sounds like your vets are very much on top of it. They will hopefully now. That's why I say go in and speak yeah. to them. I, I, I totally agree. I think it is. makes a lot. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier just to, to to sit down and, as you say, see the illustrations, see any scans that might have been done. And Shadi, I hope you're okay, and I hope little one's okay too. Please do keep us posted. And thank you, Dr. Leanne. I think it's really valuable to to hear your take on everything too. Um, Denise's been in touch as well about a rescue. I don't know what your rescue is called, Denise, but saying our rescue was um, is one year old was brought up on human food. And we've been through various different wet and dry foods in an attempt to wean him off. He'll do a couple of days enthusiastically and then suddenly won't touch it. We now can't find anything he'll touch, even heavily disguised in human food. And he's so skinny, we've had to resort to cooking again. Any suggestions? Um, he'll happily chomp down chicken, rice, cheese, scrambled egg, vegetables. But it's costing a fortune and I'm not convinced he's getting all the nutrients that he needs. Um, as I say, he's super skinny and can't afford to lose any more weight. So feeling desperate. A skinny, picky rescue, Leanne. Where would you be starting with this? Yeah, um, so I I completely understand the, the, the worry and the fear of this because obviously 
the thing is, is whenever a dog, um, a lot of it is to do with um, kind of taste and textures and things like that. And sometimes if they've never actually shown down on kibble or any of that, it can be um, very weird and disorientating to them. So, um, of course, the first thing I always say is just make sure that there isn't any other reason why that why um, he is skinny. Is there a reason? Is there something in his mouth that is uncomfortable to take kibble? Is there um, some under underlying? If he has only been fed food since he was a puppy to a year old, he could have some nutritional deficiencies. He could have some electrolyte abnormalities. So I would recommend that he does get a full health mm-hmm. check um, to make sure and then they can obviously be altered. Um, I do have some patients who sometimes animal especially um you know not kind of pointing the figure figure at certain breeds but the poodle and i have what a half a poodle um, so i know <laughs> how fussy they can be poodles are very very smart as well so they can realize that okay if I, i'll eat this it's actually okay but i'm sort of not overly fussed on it so i know that if i stop eating it today my mommy and daddy are going to change my food to something even tastier and going to give me scrambled egg and cheese. So mm. sometimes you have to be a little bit cruel to be kind in terms of, obviously, long term, you're not going to obviously starve him for two or three days. Um, but he, he, if he is a healthy, happy one-year-old dog, he needs to eat for energy. So um, he will, if you, what I say is put the food down. You can mix it. Obviously, you can have 70% chicken if you want and some dry food. You put the food down. If after 15 minutes he hasn't eaten it, you take it up. And you don't offer him that food again until lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And lunchtime you do the same thing. And then eventually they will clock, oh, hold on a minute. If I don't eat now, they're going to take it away. And it's that sort of getting them back into a routine that, okay, I have to eat this. Now, don't get me wrong. There'll be some dogs that'll prefer fish over um, you know, beef food and all the rest of it. But it is trying to um, get past that period of time of them realizing that if they don't eat something, then they will end up, um, it'll t- they'll change it anyway. So this is just all like my six-year-old. Yeah, yeah, she'll often be like, hmm, if I don't eat yeah. this, maybe I'll get some cheese on toast. Um, yeah. Okay, great advice there. Leanne. I think we've got time for one last question, which I think is a really lovely one from Gina saying, I'm looking to buy a toy for my daughter's dog for Christmas. How do I know that they're safe? Is there a mark, like a kite mark, to look for? Such a good question when we think about how many, you know, obstructions come in over Christmas, whether that is, you know, eyes from teddies or tinsel or things that are just simply not meant to be around animals. But if you are looking to buy a pet toy, dog toy in particular, what would you be looking for, Leanne? So unfortunately, there isn't such marks, but not not to try and be too blanket, and I'll give some examples of ones that I particularly like, but no toy is safe unless it is being given whenever there is full supervision because any dog can chew up um, anything at any rate. It doesn't matter. Even some of these indestructible things, Guinness has torn apart to pieces. So um, it is very important that any toy that is um, given is always given under... um, under our watch and under supervision um, the so in terms of generally I say stick to the kind of bigger brands I love Kong toys I find them they're brilliant because you can stuff them with stuff and it has ours entertainment and they are you know you have to have really really strong teeth to try and break through those um, and the other thing is is that um, often rope toys, for example, um, again, more kind of social toys that mum and um, other dogs can play with with them. So I find a pulley toy is quite nice because you can pull one end and the dog pulls the other. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interactive toys. And then, as I say, bigger, obviously, 
size appropriate balls for the size of the dog um, as well. So obviously make sure you're not giving a tiny ball to a German Shepherd and don't give um, you know a big you know big dog to a small dog. They'll just be very frustrated trying to pick it up. Um, but those are usually good. And, and I do another thing that I absolutely love are the actual interactive food toys. So the ones where you put little treats in um, and they have to sniff around it and press little buttons and things like that. So that's um, that could make your daughter happy and um and enjoyment out of it as love well. that bit of mental stimulation as well liam thank yeah. you so so much get back to whatever furry friend is on uh, is waiting for you um really appreciate your time as ever and um hopefully get a bit of a rest although i have to say you vets are always on the clock dr leanne cameron from the british veteran hospital um they are there on our wassell road in jamira three um if you want her details just send me the word vet and i will hook you up You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.